0: Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, that you love us, that you care about us, Lord, that you have given us hope and a future and that we can rejoice in you, that we have a hope in Christ, Lord. While this world, Lord, is anxious and worried and they have no hope, Lord, we have hope in Christ, hope of the resurrection, hope of eternity with you and joy in your presence forevermore. So lift up our hearts today, Lord. Help us to gaze upon your beauty. May we glorify you, Lord, this morning. May we continue to exalt your name. May your word speak to our hearts, Lord. May it penetrate our hearts. We pray that you would sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. So guard us, Lord, from the enemy today. Guard us from any thought that's not of you. Keep our hearts and minds in perfect peace, Lord. And show us, Lord, areas of our lives that you want us to grow in. Areas of our lives, Lord, that need refining and purifying. So forgive us of our sins, Lord, cleanse us, wash us anew, and bless this message in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of today's teaching is Drifting from the Simplicity. Drifting from the Simplicity. If a kind Latter-day Saint or a Jehovah's Witness ever comes knocking on your door, like they have my door a couple times, I just put a sign up saying no soliciting, But nevertheless, people still knock on the door. Um, One person wants to mow our lawn for $20, I guess. I was going to negotiate. I wasn't there when he came by, but front and backyard for $20 maybe. I don't know. It seems a little much, but teenagers these days. Anyways, so, but what can, what do do you want to say to a Jehovah's Witness or a Latter-day Saint when they come to your door? This is what I like to ask them tell me in a sentence or two your message what's the main point what do you what are you here today trying to not sell me but what are you trying to win me to I'm a Christian I go to church I believe in Jesus and I want to say what I want to hear what they have to say what what are you here for what is your message and I'll even ask Roman Catholics, I ha- if I have discussions with them, professing Christians, people that are quote unquote evangelizing, or I see handing out tracts, or what's your message? What's the main point? Summarize it for me in a minute or two. I went back and forth with a man in San Antonio, Texas, a couple years ago. We were visiting James Jackson and the brothers and sisters out there, and brother Nico some of you guys know him who hits the streets and evangelizes well he saw this guy getting out of his car and he had a Christian bumper sticker or some sort of verse on the back of his car and he had a some sort of megaphone and he was getting ready to go street preaching and so Nico caught him and started talking to him and then I we kind of tag-teamed this guy and I get went in there and we're talking maybe for an hour back and forth about the bible and who is jesus and all these things and i finally said what's your message what do you want people to know out here as you're coming out here i think he said week after week he comes out with this bullhorn whatever megaphone and shouts his message i said what is your message and it was something to the effect of politicians are deceiving people biden or obama is corrupt believe in god And then he was talking about keeping God's commandments. That was essentially his message. And I told him, you know, I agree with, you know, and there was more than that. And I said, I agree with some of the things you're saying. Yeah, politicians are corrupt and they are leading people astray. I said, you're missing something, though. You're missing the main part. You're missing the main thing. How did the apostles preach? If you could pull the apostle Paul aside, if you could pull Peter aside, if if you could get a glimpse into what is your message, well, thankfully, we do have a glimpse of it. We have the scriptures. 1 Corinthians two two. I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the summary of Paul's message. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, I have delivered to you as of first importance that what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried at and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Of first importance, the foremost thing, the main thing was that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and rose again. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Matthew 1, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' very name means he will save his people from their sins. Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Acts 16, 31. Here's this jailer. Paul's in this cell. He's singing praises to God at night. He just got beaten up, him and Silas, for casting out a demon. The jailer, the guard, they're watching over him. There's an earthquake. The doors open up. All the people go running. The jailer's about to kill himself. Because he was going to get the death penalty for allowing all these people to leave. Paul says, We're still here. We're not going anywhere. This jailer heard Paul singing to the Lord. He heard perhaps part of the gospel message. He knew that Paul knew the Lord. So he says, Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The jailer was saved that day, him and his household, and was baptized. The main message Romans 1 for I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek and Galatians six fourteen. but as for me may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world that's what's missing. It's missing in many people's lives. Many professing Christians even are drifting from the centrality, the simpleness, the single-mindedness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every false faith, every false ideology attacks the main teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They attack that Jesus Christ is the sinless Lamb of God, God in the flesh, whose blood covers all sin. They attack the cross of Christ where he took our sins upon himself. They attack the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ where our justification was confirmed where Christ conquered death. Look at any major faith. Look at any false ideology or some sort of faith that even claims to be Christian like Latter-day Saints or Jehovah's Witness or any of these, they will attack the gospel of who Christ is, what he did on the cross and his bodily resurrection. Satan has deceived many from the simplicity of the gospel and purity of devotion to Christ. It's a dangerous place to be and many people are in this place. They don't even know the gospel. If you talk to a Latter-day Saint, Jehovah's Witness, people that come to your door and you say, what is the gospel? Some of them won't have a response. They might say something like Jesus loves me or Jesus died on the cross. Latter-day Saint will say that, Jesus died on the cross. But as we're going to see in a minute, they believe much more than that. They put things on top of the scripture. They put things in place of the cross instead of putting that at the front and center of what Jesus did for our sins. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11.3. 2 Corinthians 11.3, this is the main verse that we're looking at today. Paul's writing to a Corinthian church. It's a mess, let's just say that. They're all over the place. He wrote two letters. He actually wrote three, possibly four. We don't have them. We have 1 Corinthians and we have 2 Corinthians. Paul poured his life into this church. And we see in 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says, but I am afraid. King James, I fear lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. This verse has been on my heart for some time. As I read my Bible throughout the week I mentioned to you guys maybe a couple weeks ago I go to Panda Express on my lunch break at the school that I teach at. Try to get away from the kids and go to a peaceful, quiet place where I can read and eat some orange chicken. And while I'm doing that, I have my Bible open and I keep coming back to this verse, the simplicity of the gospel, the purity of devotion to Christ. The Corinthian church had drifted from this. The actual Greek word is corrupting. It means to be literally wasted away. Your minds have been wasted or should be wasted away because of what Satan is doing in this church is what Paul is saying that word simplicity means single hearted faith in Christ you've drifted your minds have been corrupted from single hearted faith in Jesus Christ so he says I'm terrified as I mentioned King James Version states I fear Fabia where we get the word a phobia is the Greek word there. When you're scared or fearful of, fighter, of spiders or snakes or waterfalls or whatever it is that maybe you have a phobia of, that's the Greek word where we get fear or to be afraid or terrified. And Paul's saying, I fear for you. I'm afraid of your condition, where you're headed. Are you guys even Christians? I don't know. I can't tell by the way you guys are acting and the way you guys are speaking Paul was trembling at the idea that Satan had corrupted, polluted their minds from the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. He says, For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. It's as if you guys have accepted a different message. Paul goes, I would believe that by the way you're acting. By the way you're speaking, sure. It can't be the gospel of Jesus Christ you guys are believing because you wouldn't be acting the way you are if you were submitting to the cross of Jesus Christ. If you look at chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, he says, we're ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again with himself, with himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. He's like, We're, I'm ready to return to you guys. And he wants to return in love. But he says, when I come back in person, man, I'm going to bring a rod with me. I'm going to confront and rebuke and correct all disobedience. We're taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ. He said that a couple of verses earlier. So, Satan is crafty, as we saw in verse 3. Lest as the serpent deceived Eve, as the serpent tricked Eve by his craftiness, that your mind should be led astray from the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ. The Greek word there is panargia. It means cunning, trickery, unscrupulous cunning that stops at nothing to achieve a selfish goal. Crafty. That's what the enemy is described as in scripture. It's the same Greek word used in Luke 20:23 20, when the religious leaders were trying to trap Jesus. Luke 20:23, 20, there they are. They, they said, are you going to pay taxes to Caesar? Do you pay taxes? And it says that Jesus caught them in their panorgia. He caught them in their craftiness. He said, throw me a denarius. Whose emblem, whose picture is on this coin? Give to Caesar what's Caesar. Give to God what's God. And it says they basically went away. They tried again. Over and over they try to trap him in their craftiness because they're inspired by Satan, and over and over again he destroys their foolish speculations. This Greek word is also used in Second Corinthians four, two. Paul talks about his ministry, and he says, Not walking in craftiness, panorgia. We're not walking in trickery, craftiness, adulterating the word of God. We're giving you a plain some simple message of Jesus Christ and him crucified it's used another time in the New Testament Ephesians 4.14 as a result we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men by craftiness panergia, in deceitful scheming or methods of delusion Paul's saying there, we need to grow up. We need to mature. We need to grow in the faith so that we're not being tossed around all the time by men in this world who are trying to trick us, persuade us to false ideologies, false religions, false philosophies. We need to be strong in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul says, we are not ignorant of the devil's schemes. We're not ignorant of his schemes when you know the word, when you know the truth, when you have the mind of Christ, when you're in union with him and trusting in him, you are discerning and you know the the enemy's schemes. You know what he's trying to do in your life. Satan is always trying to undermine, undercut, and distort the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. If you read the New Testament, the apostles, after Jesus rose from the grave, Jesus said, remain in Judea, and in jerusalem and in samaria and then go to the uttermost parts of the world spread the message of the gospel and if you read the book of acts that's what they did and it all started in pentecost in jerusalem they're speaking in tongues jews from all over the world were coming to gather together to worship god and they were speaking in different languages and the apostles were speaking and the disciples were speaking in their languages and tongues And Peter gets up and he stands up and he proclaims the gospel and it says 3,000 people were saved on that one day. And from then on, the church just spread like wildfire. And Paul's missionary journeys, I mean, we have his letters, Corinth. He went to Thessalonica. He went to Philippi. He went to Rome. He went to all these churches. He's planting churches. He's winning people to the Lord. The gospel's spreading. So what does Satan do? He hates that the truth is going out. He hates that Christ's light and truth is permeating the hearts and minds of people. So what does he do? He goes around and sows false seeds. He tries to blind the minds of people so that they don't see the beauty and truth of Jesus Christ. He's always following after. That's his job. That's basically what he's signed up for. He's a slithering snake going around, being cunning and crafty, copying Jesus and his message, just twisting things here and there so what's satan's plan i want to give you three things that we see in first and second corinthians three things that we see this is satan's plan number one undercut the message number two undermine the messenger number three prop up deceitful false teachers who disguise themselves three main things that satan does in the corinthian church So number one, he undercuts the message. He wants to get the focus off of Christ. Get the focus off the cross, off the resurrection, off the gospel. Paul and the apostles, that's the main thing, right? That's the main thing they're preaching. The crucified Savior. So Satan needs to get their minds off of that, and that's what he does in 1 Corinthians, right from the get-go. Verses 10 through 16, if you read 1 Corinthians, Paul's... Letter to this church, we see that they're so caught up in baptism. Who baptized me? That 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 that's becoming their main concern. They're saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Christ. And Paul's saying, Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Was Peter crucified for you? He goes, I didn't even baptize any of you maybe a couple of you he goes Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the gospel this morning I went into the garage and there was a bunch of ants in there right by my garage door perhaps you guys get ants too from time to time and so I'm looking at this Corinthian church as I'm looking over my notes and I'm looking at all these ants and these ants work together right there there there's a ton of them but I don't know how they communicate, but they're working together. They're carrying little potato chips on their back and little popcorn kernels. They're carrying like 10 times their weight. I don't know how they do it, but they're working together. This Corinthian church perhaps at one point was working together, but now they're divided. Their minds are all over the place. They're scatterbrained. They're out of control. And what happens if you pour some water on a a big pile of ants or you rub your hand through them or step on them? Mayhem, right? They're running around like crazy. They're all over the place, like they've, they've lost their minds. They can't communicate anymore. They're divided. Leah reminded me of, I think it's called A Bug's Life. You guys are too old for that movie, maybe if you have kids. But I think it starts raining in the movie, and or or somehow, or no, maybe a human was pouring water on them, or there was drops from sprinklers, and they're yelling, rain, in the movie, and the ants just go nuts, right? They're running around. And that's what I see the Corinthian church here doing. That's how Satan is gonna get them all divided. I'm of Paul, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of this, and I'm of Baptist, I've been baptized, and who baptized you, and what's go What about the gospel? What about Christ? What about the centrality of the message that Paul brought to them and labored over them with? So Satan was already getting a foothold, and Paul's like, I'm going to address this right from the get-go. First Corinthians one So Paul responds by hammering home the message. Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 1, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. He's saying, I don't want to get in the way. Sure, maybe I could take some rhetoric classes and classes on being a good communicator and I could make it sound all nice for you Corinthians I could really tickle your ears if you'd like me to but it's not about that I need to get out of the way I'm here to show you Christ I'm here to show you the cross I'm here to point you to him it's not about me I want to get out of the way so that you guys clearly see the Savior he goes on in verse 18 for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness verse 23 of first Corinthians 1 we preach Christ crucified First Corinthians 2 2 I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified do you see how he keeps going back to Jesus being crucified Jesus' death the gospel you guys are all over the place how am I going to solve this problem with Satan getting in his hand in this church I'm going to go back to the gospel I'm going to preach the gospel I'm going to preach the truth of who Christ is what he did for you and who you should be in him satan wants to distort and distract the true gospel preacher brings it back to the main message and so that's what paul does over and over again it reminds me of my mom when i was caught up in sin in my teenage years confused satan was able to get a hold of my mind i was doing all sorts of stupid things as i was looking back at my teenage years i remember how poker which sometimes i play with friends for fun I'd go to the casino, and I'd just spend hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars that I didn't have because I was a college baseball player and didn't have much money. But the $500 that I did have in my account, one day I just burned it at the casino. Going back to the ATM, I know I can win this money back. Another $100. Oh, come on, I know I've hit a flush before. Another $100, another $100. I'm sleeping in my car at the casino. I'll go back in the morning. I know I can win a lot more. It just grabs a hold of you. Satan will use whatever he can to get your minds distracted from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's just one way he did it in my life. So I'd come home from empty gambling binges or parties with my friends or whatever, and my mom would say, are you trusting in Jesus Christ? If you died today, would you go to heaven? Are you living for him? She would bring it back to Christ, the gospel. Am I saved? Am I living for him? Am I on the road to heaven? Over and over and over. She was like the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church. They wanted to hear something else, they wanted their ears tickled. He goes, No, I'm going to give you the gospel. And those who had ears to hear would hear it and conform to the message. And for some time, I didn't have ears to hear. I don't want to hear it, Mom. Go to bed. I'm going to go to bed. Talk to you later. See you tomorrow. But she was persistent. She kept pouring into my life, and finally I submitted. So on my 21st birthday, all my friends said it's time to go out and party. I said no. I was sitting in my room crying out to the Lord. Lord, I want to go a different direction now, and it was hard. I'm getting phone calls, and come on, you should be partying, and I'm like torn inside, but I knew I needed to follow the Lord. I knew I was on the wrong path. That's Paul's heart for the Corinthian church. He's pleading with them. Turn from this path. I'm afraid. I'm terrified with where you're heading. And if you truly love the Lord, that's your response to people that are not walking in accordance with the gospel. Should terrify you because you know that they're headed for destruction. So in 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul says, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid Jesus Christ he goes right before that one man plants and another waters but God's the one that does the increase so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything because God is the one causing the growth he's getting it back to Christ he's getting it back to the gospel get your eyes off of me Corinthian church Apollos and I we're preaching the gospel but it's not about us it's about God he causes the growth we're preaching this gospel and laying a foundation But only one foundation can truly be laid, and that's the foundation of Christ. You get to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. He says, Christ is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. You get to chapter 9, verse 16. Paul says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Get to chapter 9, verse 23. He says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. By the time you get to chapter 11, verse 26, he's talking about communion. Here they are showing up for communion and they're getting drunk. So Paul's like, what is going on? Can't you guys figure this out? I've labored among you. I've taught you the truth. And then, of course, he points it back to the gospel and the Lord's death. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's why we take communion every Sunday. We want it to be at the forefront of our worship service. We want to remember what Christ did for us lest we start to drift away from it. By the time you get to 1 Corinthians 15, Satan has caused them to drift in their minds to believe that there's no resurrection. So they say, yeah, we don't know if there's a resurrection. We don't even know if Jesus rose from the grave. Paul says, really? Look at 1 Corinthians 15, one through four these are verses that we should all be very familiar familiar with especially if you're talking to people of other faiths people that knock on your door people that you have conversations with first corinthians 15 1 through 4 the whole chapter is great but these four verses now i make known to you brethren the gospel here he says i make known to you i'm going to now present to you the gospel Acts chapter 18, verse 11, tells us that Paul stayed with the Corinthians a year and six months. And he taught them the word of God prior to this. A year and a half, he poured his heart into them. Surely he taught them the gospel and the truth. Yet he says here, okay, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. He goes on to say, which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand by which also you are saved, if you hold fast. Those key four words, if you hold on to, if you hold fast the word which I preached you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the gospel by which you are saved. Christ dying on the cross, being buried and rising again, took our sins and punishment on the cross. Don't drift from this, Corinthian church. This is of first importance. The Greek word is protos. It means chief, principle, foremost, above all else. This is above all else. This is the gospel. Know it, believe it, live for it. Hold fast to the gospel. So just in case, Corinthians, if you don't know the message, if you haven't got it yet, I'm making it known to you one more time. And many Christians, I'm afraid of, have drifted from this. They've drifted from the purity and devotion to Christ. I looked up an article. Actually, I looked up the thechurchofjesuschrist.org, the main Website I believe for the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints. I wanted to know is the gospel front and center? What do you guys think is it front and center on this page? They have a picture of Jesus. They have great artwork by the way really good artists Of Jesus and the Apostles and it all looks really nice same with the jw.org website They're both they've hired some really great artists, but when it comes to the content, I have to say it's quite lacking Under the heading, Jesus died for us on the website. Jesus died for us. What is under the heading that Jesus died for us? Surely, 1 Corinthians 15, or surely a passage of he took our sins upon himself on the cross, right? No, I couldn't find it. Instead, this is what I found. There, quote, there, that's the Garden of Gethsemane, he felt the weight of every sin, and pain known to mankind and suffered for every person who has ever lived. They take the thrust of the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ and what he did for our sin, and they place it in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where he bore our sins. That's where he took the sin upon him, in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where he atoned for the sins of the world. And this has been a Mormon doctrine that I think his name is Hinkley or McConkie, another quote I'll share in just a second, they want to take the focus off of Christ and the cross, the very same thing that Satan was doing in the Corinthian church and from the very beginning. Now, if you can find verses in the scripture that talk about the atonement in the Garden of Gethsemane, please show me, because there aren't any. They want to take the focus off the gospel. Apostle Bruce McConkie, Stated in his New Testament commentary, page 774, quote, But in reality, the pain and suffering, the triumph and grandeur of the atonement took place primarily in Gethsemane. Sure, Jesus was sweating as if it were drops of blood. He was pouring out his heart to his Father. He was suffering greatly in the garden. But it's not where he took our sins upon himself. It's not where he was the propitiatory sacrifice as the scripture talks about. Our sins were laid on Christ on the cross. And we see this over and over and over in scripture. So, attack the message. That's Satan's game plan number one. Paul ends 1 Corinthians in 16 verse 22 by saying if anyone does not love the Lord let him be accursed Maranatha strong words he wrote 16 chapters hammering them on all their false teachings all their false ideologies all their divisions and getting drunk and living in sin and fornication and he's hammering them he's telling them I still love you I'm going to still pour my life into you but if anyone does not love the Lord let him be accursed and he says in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 the wicked man from among you if there's people living in sin in your church warn them correct them pray that they'll turn to the gospel but if they don't rid them from the church today many would say that's unloving that's unkind and so churches are filled with people that don't trust in jesus don't believe in the gospel they're living for themselves scripture says a little leaven leavens the whole lump it's like a cancer that spreads throughout the church and permeates other people's lives let's look at point number two point number two satan undermines the messenger first he goes after the message then he attacks the messenger in this case it's the apostle paul now there's hints in first corinthians in the first letter that they're undermining paul's ministry but it really picks up by the time we get to second corinthians to the point where it seems to have permeated most of the church. They're questioning his apostleship. Is he really sent from the Lord? They're saying he's old, he's decrepit, he's a poor man who's going blind, he's frail, he's weak. He's always suffering. His speech is so unsophisticated, surely God's not using him as an apostle. That is what the Corinthians were saying. 2 Corinthians 10.10 They say his letters are weighty and strong but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. They're like, look at him. You know, we read, I think it was last week, a second century document that says he was bow-legged and bent over and had a unibrow and I think a bald head and big nose and they're like, who is this guy? really? They're like, where's your resume, Paul? Where's your letters? Don't you have letters from like Peter or John or the the people in Jerusalem? I mean, that's where the main church is at. Who are you to come preach the gospel to us? They're doubting him, mocking him, questioning him. How would you feel? How would you feel if you're going all over the world preaching the gospel and in the meantime your ship's being sunk and people are hating you on the way because you already have the Jewish people that hate you? You have non-believers that hate you. They're all trying to kill you. You finally get to these churches and you're ministering to them and then you leave and they're all talking bad about you behind your back. They're all mocking you and making fun of you. Would you want to keep pouring your life into them? Would you want to show them love? I'd say I'm done. I give up. I'm doing something else. I'm going to go to the Philippian church. I really like those people. That's what I would do. Paul keeps pouring his life into into this corinthian church he says i don't seek what is yours but you in second corinthians 12 he says i will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls if i love you more am i to be loved less he's like i'm gonna keep giving my life to you guys i'm gonna keep spending my resources and my time and any money that I might have to pour into you if I love you more are you going to love me less he says I wasn't a burden to any of you he even says at one point I robbed other churches to give to you I mean Paul is like he's my guy in the scripture there's Jesus and Paul's like you know an infinite there's an infinite chasm there but then when you get to a human Paul's the guy Follow me as I follow Christ, 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Philippians 3, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. He wasn't perfect, but he knew Christ, I believe, better than almost anyone. He knew the sufferings of Christ. He knew Jesus so well that he could say, follow me as I follow Christ that's my goal i try to be a man like paul that when people are against me people say things about me which by god's grace i don't hear about that a lot but it happens to many pastors and many people that are trying to live righteously for the lord our hearts should be for them our hearts should be praying for them blessing them and continuing to preach the gospel and live for christ and not be bitter but paul does turn the tables on them So sure, he's going to show them love, but he's not quite backing down. The whole letter of 2 Corinthians is a defense letter. He's proving his apostleship. You guys say I'm not an apostle? I'm going to show you I'm an apostle. Because by trying to discredit my apostleship, Satan's still trying to attack the message too. Because if you can discredit me, then perhaps you could say the message isn't true. And he's saying, no, the message is true, and I'm going to continue to preach that and I'm a true apostle as well. They want to say, because of your weakness, because of your suffering, you're disqualified. He turns it on them and says, because of my weakness and because of my suffering, I'm not only qualified, I'm an apostle, and I look more like Jesus than any of you because Jesus was weak and because Jesus suffered greatly in his life and ministry. 2 Corinthians 1.5. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.30 If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. 2 Corinthians 12.5 I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. 2 Corinthians 12.9 most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. You want to discredit my weakness? He goes on, 2 Corinthians thirteen four. Jesus was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God, for we also are weak in him, yet we shall live with him because of the power of God directed to you. He's saying, do you realize that when you're undermining my ministry, you're undermining Jesus and his ministry? When you're calling me weak and frail and suffering to discredit me, you're trying to, in essence, you're discrediting Jesus and the gospel. Do you see what you're doing? The very message by which you are saved, you are attacking when you attack me. He's showing them over and over the foolishness of their argument. Perhaps you've heard of Johnny Erickson Tata, quadriplegic, dove into a pond when she was around 16 years old. Um, She can barely move her arms and legs. She's been in a wheelchair pretty much her entire life since she was 16. Now she's maybe in her 60s. In and out of the hospital. Every morning she has to get help getting dressed, combing her hair, the basic things of life that you and I take for granted are a struggle for her every single day from the moment she wakes up. And she's actually like a world-recognized artist. She paints with her mouth. She puts a paintbrush in her mouth, and she look her up online, Johnny Erickson Tata. She was on Larry King. Some of you guys have heard of him preaching the good news and how she's rejoicing in Jesus in the midst of all her weaknesses and suffering that she's gone through in her life, continued to pour her life into others. Listen to what she says. She says, My weakness, that is even my quadriplegia, is my greatest asset because it forces me into the arms of Christ every morning when I get up. The weaker I am, the harder I must lean on God's grace. The harder I lean on him, the stronger I discover him to be. And, bo- and the bolder my testimony to his grace. She goes on to say, God deliberately chooses weak, suffering, and unlikely candidates to get his work done, so that in the end, the glory goes to God and not to the person. Beautiful quotes from a beautiful testimony of a woman who said, I'm not going to allow my weaknesses, as great as they are, to slow me down in the ministry, to discredit my ministry, to wreck my joy and my comfort and my hope in Jesus Christ. So it might look foolish to the world to put a paintbrush in my mouth, but I'm going to do it unto the Lord. And I see that in the Apostle Paul. I'm going to continue to spend and be expended for your souls. I may look foolish. I may not have great rhetoric. I might not talk like these false apostles. I'm going to keep giving what I have to you in the ministry. There's a song I've been listening to lately it's applicable here it's called scars waking up to a new sunrise looking back from the other side I can see now with open eyes darkest water and deepest pain I wouldn't trade it for anything because my brokenness brought me to you and these wounds are a story you'll use so I'm thankful for the scars because without them I wouldn't know your heart And I know they'll always tell of who you are. So forever I'm thankful for the scars. We're thankful for Christ's scars because without them we wouldn't be saved, we wouldn't have hope, we wouldn't have a future. And we we should also be thankful for our scars as well because they remind us of who Christ is and what he did for us and they show us that we're on the right path, that we're following in the footsteps of our Savior and that he told us if they hate me, they're going to hate you also. In this world, you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So the scars that Paul bore for Christ, the sufferings he went through, showed his devotion to Christ, his love for him. He should have been honored, and instead the Corinthian church was rejecting him. Last point. Point number three. Satan, in his craftiness, props up deceitful, false teachers who disguise themselves to lead Christians astray. These people sound really wise. Today, they might have a couple doctorate degrees. They might know the Greek and Hebrew, even. They're going to tell you some really good stories. They know the Bible, they know the scriptures. They're most likely very kind and gentle and sweet people. They have excellent resumes and they look really close to being the real deal. These are the false teachers. You guys ever had those Zevia drinks? I was thinking about these drinks that Leo used to get them all the time. They use Stevia instead of sugar. So there's, there are no sugar sodas. And they're really close to being the real deal. At least if you've never had a Pepsi or a 7-Up or a Mountain Dew or a Dr. Pepper, if you drink these sodas, and I have because she used to get them, I'm like, these are really good. And we, I couldn't believe it that there's no sugar in these sodas. But those who know Dr. Pepper and 7-Up, it's a silly analogy, but if you, if you drink soda all the time, you drink these Zevias, you like spit it out, and you're like, this is disgusting. Because you know the real thing. So some of you that know soda, if you try these, you could probably tell me that. But I like them because I don't know the real thing. Here's the point. The more you and I know Jesus, the more you and I know his word, we cling to him, we spend time with him, we see right through these false teachers. We see right through the false messages that they bring. We see their deeds and we call them out. But the more we drift, the more we allow Satan to get a foothold in our minds, the more we get caught up in sin and we get tripped up, the false ideologies start looking that much sweeter. They start looking like the real thing. We start becoming deluded and we start becoming deceived, which means tricked, which means we actually think they're telling a good message when they're really not. It's something that's very, very dangerous so we need to make sure that we're in the word, we're in prayer, we're focusing on the Lord. Listen how Paul describes these false teachers, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15. He says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end shall be according to their deeds. They don't go in churches dressed in all black with pentagrams on them. They don't have a pitchfork. They don't say, hey, we're messengers of Satan here. They look just like the real thing. They appear as angels of light, just like Satan. They're in it for the money, though. They devour churches. They cause division and that's what we see in the Corinthian church. Jesus calls them hirelings in John chapter 10, hired hands. He says when danger comes, in Jesus' example in John 10, when the wolf comes, when the bear comes, when the lion comes to take the sheep, they get right out of the way. They're just a hired hand. They're just doing it for the money. They are paid a sum to watch the sheep, and when danger comes, they clear out of the way. They're not a true shepherd. They don't really care about the sheep they don't really care about people and their souls peter calls them unreasoning animals second 2 peter 2:12, 2 king james version is brute beasts irrational animals in the greek who will be destroyed jude calls them many things in the book of jude the short letter hidden reefs clouds without water autumn trees without fruit wild waves of the sea wandering stars for whom is reserved blackness of darkness forever and ever. Mark them, avoid them, stay close to Jesus. So what does this mean for us today? And one preacher I heard, he said, you preach a message, now so what? So what? You preach this and that, so what? What do you do with that? Well, I brought it up a couple times. We need to be careful that our minds are not corrupted by the things of this world. That we stay sober-minded. As Peter says, be sober-minded, clear thinking. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion trying to devour people. Seeking someone to devour. I think that's it. That's what Satan does. He's looking for people that aren't thinking clearly, whose minds have been led astray, whose minds have been corrupted. I mean, we have more access to sermons and Christian articles and commentaries and You can pull up the Greek and Hebrew. You can do so much for Christ with the technology that we have today. It's technology, information, overload at the click of a button. Yet even that can be distracting. Even that can lead people down rabbit trails. You have men with PhDs. You have men that study for years and years and years the Bible, yet they've drifted from the gospel. I've known them. I've talked to them. I've worked with people that have seminary degrees and only the Lord knows, but from their actions, I'm going, do you even know the gospel? Do you know Christ? Do you know the truth? We have more distractions, more gossip, more temptations, more entertainment at the click of a button than this world has ever known. I read an article... It stated, a recent study in the Journal of Science found that many people choose to self-administer electric shock rather than sit quietly in a room alone with their thoughts. They did a study, and they put a button, and they said, this button is an electric shock. And they said, you know what? Actually, try the button. So before they actually did the study, they let everyone try the button. And they pushed the button, and it shocks them. And they said, that hurt, didn't it? And they're like, yeah. And... I forget how the exact study went, but they're like, we're not even going to put this button in because surely no one's going to push this button. I mean, and it inflicts pain. It hurts people. Just sit them in the room for 10 to 20 minutes and we're going to put cameras in there and see how they react. And they decided, you know what, we're going to put the button in there. No, probably no one's going to push this button. I mean, that would be dumb, right? But surely maybe they'll get restless or pace back and forth, pa- back and forth for 10 to 20 minutes without their phone, any electronics, uh, I think any books or anything like that they found that I think 70% of people pushed the button. They got so bored, so restless, didn't know what to do with themselves that they were just like, I gotta push the button. The, the people that put this together were shocked. And it just shows you the technology, the, the age that we live in of everything at the click of a button. Our minds are just going rapidly and we need to take a step back and say, am I getting caught up in this? Because it's so easy to Be a part of it and not realize that you're not sober minded that when it comes time to pray for five seconds even we're into praying and we're like oh my mind's over here my mind's over there like where's my phone I oh someone just texted me we can't focus on the Lord we struggle to pray because our minds are all over the place we struggle to read the word because we can't put our phone or the technology down our hearts are anxious and all over the place because we're bombarded with news and gossip and this and that and we all have to pray what that looks like in our lives to say, Lord, I just want to get alone with you. Even Jesus constantly went away from his disciples and from everyone. He was constantly going up in the mountains, constantly seeking time with his father. He didn't have cell phones and technology like we do today. But I think just the noise around him, he's like, I need to sneak away. And the, dis- the disciples started to see that. Where's Jesus? Oh, he's probably off praying with his father. And so that's my goal for us. We'd be able to get away, really spend time with the Lord. One commentator states Satan adapts his temptations to the character and circumstances of the tempted. He varies his temptations from age to age and applies them in such a way as best to secure his object. Hence, all should be on their guard. No one knows the mode in which he will approach him, but all may know that he will approach them in some way. And I think the main way he's doing it today is technology even in my kids lives they wake up they get the ipad out they get the tv going it's just second nature they're just they're ready to go time to watch and they're not watching bad stuff even ha- most of the time it's they're watching a christian cartoon or this or that but it's like f- if i'm not careful five hours later i'm mowing the lawn i'm doing this and that and they're still sitting on the couch doing that and so we just have to be careful we have to give it to the lord Isaiah 26.3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. When your mind is stayed on the Lord, when you're meditating on his word, like David who says, One thing I ask that I may dwell in your temple all the days of my life to dwell, to meditate on your beauty. I think it's Psalm 27 where he says that. that's one thing. Lord, I just want to meditate in your temple. Just want to gaze upon your beauty. The more you're memorizing scripture and meditating on his word, it's going to be like gold for your soul. You're going to leave from a time of prayer and meditation and you're going to leave filled. Rather than one person I heard recently who said she went, I think Leah shared this with me, she went away on vacation thinking, I need to be rested up and restored and refreshed. And she was on her phone just watching shows. And she came back, she's like, I'm exhausted because she wasn't giving her mind to the Lord and letting him take over. So it's the generation in which we live. It's going to be a fight to get alone, to spend time with the Lord, to focus on him, and to have the mind of Christ and not drift from the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, Lord. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word, Lord. It's a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. It's a, our guide, Lord, in life. Thank you, Lord, in the midst of the busyness, the distractions in this world, we can have your truth. We can have your mind. We can have your peace, your joy, your comfort, Lord, because you give your Holy Spirit to those who love you. And your word says that we would be filled with your spirit. And so that's my prayer for us today, Lord, that you would continually fill us with joy, with peace, and with comfort as we look to you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.